Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. In this episode, I'm going to interview Alex Rosanelli of Hound Street Winery, which is a winery on Long Island, in particular the North Fork of Long Island AVA. And we're going to talk about Long Island itself, a fairly young region which is developing and some quite exciting wines being made there, as well as Alex's own project, um, Hound's Tree, as I mentioned, and some of the great varieties that he works with, the styles of wine that he makes, and also how he deals with some of the challenges of dealing with, Long's, uh, with Long Island's maritime climate. So welcome to Alex, and if you just like to introduce yourself and your winery. Absolutely, thank you. So, um, so my name is Alex. I'm the winemaker for Hound's Tree Wines. Um, we've been making wine and growing grapes out on the east end of Long Island since 2015. Um, our winery and tasting room is located in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, um, so into New York City. And we've been open in that space um, just over a year now, so since uh, September of last year. Um, a little bit of an interesting time to be opening up a new tasting room, um, but uh, it's, been, it's been a fun adventure there. So um, yeah, been, uh, been working and making wine out on the East Coast since, uh, since 2015. Um, so we farm 30 acres out on the East End in Mattatuck, New York, on the North Fork of Long Island in the North Fork AVA. Um, and then out there we grow Chardonnay, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Petit Bordeaux. Kind of the, those are kind of the principal grape varieties out in the region on the East End of Long Island. So Bordeaux red varieties with a real focus around Merlot. Um, and then Chardonnay on the white side. Um, there's a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc planted as well, and that's becoming a little bit more popular now, but still uh, much less planted than, than Chardonnay. So what got you into wine? What's your background? So my background has been a, a little bit mixed. You know, I, uh, I actually studied economics in school and um, and then was working for, for a while in that field um, and then got involved in wine through my uncle, who's a winemaker out uh, in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. So spent some time learning from him um, and then wanted to be back home. I grew up on the East Coast in, in the suburbs of New York City um, and spending summers on Long Island. So was interested in that wine region and started to kind of slowly as I was working in the city, get to know the wines and the wineries and the region as a whole, um, you know, through the kind of late 2000s, early 2010s, um, and then, you know, started this project in 2015. So that was uh, that was the background. So this is an exciting project. How do you feel you've been doing as you've developed the winery? Uh, it's been fun. I mean, you know, I, I think that's what's so interesting and so exciting about about the East End, right? Is it, you know, it, it is a very young region and is a region that is itself developing, right? So to be kind of a young and developing project within a young and developing region is always a really exciting place to be and always interesting, right? I mean, um, you know, I, I don't think people always recognize to what extent the East Long Island is is truly a young region, right? I mean, you know, if you look at at the dates and the timeline, it doesn't seem like it's so young, right? I mean, so first vines were planted uh, in 1973 by the Hargrave family, um, you know, so that lines up with a lot of other American wine regions that kind of started to find themselves in the 1970s. Um, but the kind of the critical mass of wineries and vineyards was 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 quite small through kind of the the 1980s and into the early 1990s. So. You know, whereas, you know, the Willamette Valley in Oregon, you know, maybe 400 different wineries at this point, you know, East End of Long Island and the North Fork in particular, only 40 wineries. And, and many of those have really developed in the last 20 years. And kind of as, as, as you know, you know, with, with the new wine region that's being planted and grapes are being grown for the first time and wine is being made, it's a long process in terms of um, getting that, getting those vines to maturity, understanding the farming, understanding the winemaking and the styles that work in the, in the region. So, 
So while there have been vines planted now for, for over 40 years, um, it really does have the feel of a, of a new and emerging and kind of frontier wine region, um, which I think the East Coast in general shares in many ways. Right. And let's talk about the geography of Long Island and its climate. As you mentioned, it's on the east coast of the United States, um, just east of New York City. These are regions where it's been historically difficult to grow uh, Vitis vinifera, and it's only really in the last 30 or 40 years that some of these wine regions have been established successfully. But first of all, is Long Island actually an island? It is actually an island, yes. <laughs> it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a large island. It is, I think, the largest island off the east coast of the United States, formed in the last period of glaciation during the last ice age. Um, and it is, it, it, so the, the whole of Long Island is formed actually by several, right, but more or less is a glacial moraine. So it is the kind of the terminal geographic feature of the extent of glaciation in the last ice age. So kind of the wedge of, of earth and kind of, uh, and stones and rocks that are pushed forward by the glacier as it proceeded south. Um, it ended right where, right where Long Island is formed, right? So you have the kind of the wedge of earth that was pushed up in front of the glacier and the glacier melted. And that's left there. So the melting of the glacier forms Long Island Sound, forms the Peconic Bay, and the outwash of the glacier as it melts forms the South Fork of Long Island. So if you think of Long Island, the North Fork is kind of a, a, a ridge and kind of a large bench of, of gravel and glacial till that, that extends kind of about 80 feet above sea level. And then kind of the general geography of Long Island slopes down and washes out to the very flat kind of low-lying sandy beaches of the South Shore of Long Island and the barrier islands like Fire Island and, and West Hampton etc. So it is It is physically an island, geographically formed, large, kind of deep, even, well-draining glacial till soils. So, you know, quite a gravelly, sandy soil, very well-draining, which uh, which is obviously critically important on the on the East Coast, where, where annual precipitation is quite high. And, and kind of most importantly, there's, there's, there's no real distinction between um, kind of the growing season and, and the winter in terms of average precipitation. So, so we receive, you know, rainfall throughout the growing season, um, you know, in this past growing season, 2021, we received about on average, you know, four inches per month. So quite a wet wine region and, and humid. So those well-draining soils are really important um, in terms of, you know, keeping the vines um, with some level of water stress. Um, you know, that maritime climate is also very influential for a number of reasons. Um, get a lot of airflow um, off the water, and that's, that's critical also in, in kind of maintaining a clean and healthy canopy so that humidity isn't stagnant. You have airflow through the canopy off of, off of the water. Um, you know, you, you mentioned East Coast in general and the challenges of, uh, of East Coast winemaking. I think to some extent, um, there's a little bit of a misconception with, with the East End of Long Island in that um, we often get categorized in with, um, you know, with Finger Lakes or kind of more northern climates um, in kind of a broad generalization of being a, a cold climate or having very harsh winters. And, and that's not really the case where we are, right? That maritime influence really does protect winter temperatures. So we don't get those really cold winters that you might see in upstate New York. Um, you know, and for that reason, vinifera has really always been the center of our wine growing. There really isn't uh, a history of commercial um, hybrid or non-vinifera production on the east end of Long Island. Um, it really has been focused on vinifera since since the inception and, and on winemaking as opposed to uh, juice or table grape growing. An important point to mention there that Long Island is quite different from the rest of New York State, uh, where inland it's much more continental and cooler. And it means that Long Island has its own particular growing conditions uh, with rain coming in from the Atlantic Ocean. So an obvious comparison uh, with Long Island's maritime climate is the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, which is Bordeaux. 
Another less obvious comparison is Uruguay, which is also in the Atlantic Ocean, on the same um, side of the Atlantic as Long Island, and it's also a, a country where Merlot excels. So some comparisons there, given Long Island's climate and context. As you've already mentioned, working with Bordeaux grape varieties, particularly Merlot and Cabernet Franc, but also Cabernet Sauvignon, Petit Vidot, and also Sauvignon Blanc. But before we get into the grape varieties, can you just summarise the differences between the two major AVAs on Long Island, the Hamptons and North Fork of Long Island AVA? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, Hamptons, in general, you know, they're, they're quite close. So, so geographically, in terms of the macro climate, um, much more, uh, they have much more in common than they have um, in terms of distinction, especially when thinking about the broader context of kind of global world of wine and even within New York wine. So the climatic conditions are largely similar. Um, you know, soils are different. Soils are more sandy and t tend to be lighter on the uh, on the South Fork of Long Island in the Hamptons, as opposed to kind of deeper, more gravelly, stony soils on the North Fork of Long Island. You know, the the climate tends to be a little bit cooler. You have more of that Atlantic influence as opposed to the Peconic Bay and Long Island Sound influence. Um, so those are kind of shallower, smaller bodies of water surrounding the North Fork, whereas the South Fork more directly exposed to the Atlantic. So a little bit cooler climate, lighter soils. Um, you know, th there are only three wineries located in the South Fork. I think one of the largest pressures uh, on wineries in the South Fork is is just the economic factor of, of land land costs. And so there's there's um, three wineries located there, 40 on the North Fork. I believe there are about 55, 56, 57 in total on uh, Long Island. So relatively small region with the Hamptons being a small subset of that. So the economic realities and practicalities are that the Hamptons AVA is quite expensive to uh, plant on. And so more plantings on the North Fork. But I imagine it's quite expensive there too. It is. I mean, so, you know, our, our, our biggest competitor is is, is often development and, and, and suburbanization of the North Fork of Long Island. I think that's that's the challenge to agriculture in general on the East End. You know, um, you know, the East End historically was a, you know, a farming community, was an agricultural community. So while we don't have, you know, the, the history going back until the 19th century that upstate New York does with grape growing, um, you know, with grapes only being planted in the 1970s on Long Island, you know, it, it has really had a, a history of agriculture since, you know, since, since that, that area of New York State was first settled. So it really has traditionally been farmland and, and only kind of over the last, you know, 50 years and then even more so over the last 30 years and the last 10 years have we seen um, really suburbanization and development start to expand outward. Uh, I, I will say that um, a lot of the farmland and agricultural land now on the East End is protected. So the development rights have been sold either to the towns or to the state. So that land is, is dedicated to agriculture in perpetuity. Um, and that does protect um, you know, some of our ability to continue farming. But um, I, I think that's where shifting from, you know, from row crops or from crops like potatoes or cauliflower to you know, wine grapes and particularly the value added agriculture of winemaking and, and kind of small estate wine growing, um, you know, allows for uh, allows for that land to stay agricultural land because you're you're adding that additional value and, and kind of creating that additional value with with the farming that's being done. And there must be quite a contrast, if not even a conflict between the massiveness of urban New York City and uh, more remote and rural Long Island. Absolutely. I mean, it is it is a little disconcerting in the sense, you know, and I experience this, all, you know, almost every day in that our, our vineyards are located on in the North Fork and our winery is located in in New York City. Um, but it's quite a short drive, really. Right. I mean, you know, without 
getting stuck in traffic, it's, you know, maybe an hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes, um, and couldn't be more different, right, with the Northford really being an agricultural community and, and the city being what it is. Um, I, I would also, to your point on size, a note that the North Fork of Long Island is a very small wine growing region, right, in terms of geographical size, you know, similar to something like Napa Valley. So really quite small, whereas New York is quite a large state. But, you know, even compared to something like the Finger Lakes, quite a small wine region we have on the east end of Long Island. As someone who comes from the UK, I'm aware that there is a perception that New York City and New York State are pretty much the same thing, when there's actually a huge difference between the urban New York City and the more rural parts of New York State. Do you think this is a challenge for New York wineries, not just Long Island, but Finger Lakes as well, to carve an identity which is different from New York City itself? Absolutely. You know, and as you know, the city itself is, you know, one of the most mature and saturated wine markets in the world, right? So you're, you know, you're an hour and a half away from competing um, with the world, right? So that that's really, you know, you're really held up against that. And I think that's often the challenge for New York wines in our home state and our home market and territory is, you know, that we're immediately competing against wines from all over the world, right? With, you know, with obviously great and storied levels of quality and wines from the old world, for example, but also wines that have very different economic realities than, than what we face growing, uh, you know, within an hour and a half of a major metropolitan area. And it's an interesting contrast to California, where San Francisco is also a very sophisticated mature wine market and has been for many decades. Yet California has established a reputation of its own, independent of the international wines which are imported into San Francisco and neighboring cities. So, so maybe there's the possibility of New York wines following suit and creating a reputation for themselves associated with New York City, but also independent of it. Certainly, and I think and I think contrast is is an important word word there with with regard to California, right? I think part of part of the history of California and part of Kind of the name that California has made for itself internationally is kind of the contrast that it draws stylistically often between the wines that are grown and made in the climate of California versus kind of the natural comparators grown in the old world, right? And I think, you know, even going back to, to you know, Tasting of Paris and these types of kind of seminal moments in the history of California wine, what really stood out was, was those kind of unique and very kind of different um, contrasting elements to, to kind of traditional old world um, climates and styles and maybe the vintages at that time. Um, and I think that's where, um, you know, New York maybe doesn't have that much dramatic contrast. We definitely do have more of that Atlantic maritime climate that continental Europe shares to some extent. And therefore the wines um, don't show some of kind of the, the, the bold um, contrast to, to old world styles and kind of old world terroirs that, that some other, you know, more um, kind of dramatically continental or, or, or sunny or warmer climates do. Um, so it's kind of carving out that niche. And I think we, we really do require from the consumer to that extent, you know, that level of focus to really kind of understand the nuances of the terroir and then also vintage variation, right? I mean, I think, um, you know, consumers um, can sometimes uh, become accustomed to to the idea that that new world wines don't often show vintage variation, right? And while they may be, be dedicated to um, to learning or understanding, as, as we both are, the vintage variation within classic old world regions, um, you know, whereas we do see that vintage variation as well, um, we require kind of that engagement from the consumer to understand the difference between vintages um, that we experience. I remember when I worked at a wine shop in Manchester, we had a small selection of New York wines. And I remember the 2007 vintage of some of those wines being absolutely spectacular at the time that was 
New York's best vintage ever. And so we're really excited when the 2008s came in and the quality was unfortunately a lot lower. So vintage variation clearly can be an issue in New York. Well, like, like, like every young region, I think there's a lot of variation between individual producers. And I think that's, um, you know, that, I think that's the nature of a young region, right? You have some producers who are, who are more established or who are kind of, um, you know, more adaptive to, to vintage and, and, and create greater consistency between, um, you know, but from vintage to vintage between their wines and their offerings. And I think a lot of that comes down to farming as well, right? I mean, as you know, right, so much of, so much of what happens in vintage variation is really, really dependent on the farming and the vineyard, and it's really handled there, right? Um, you know, the, the vintage is made once the time the, the, the grapes come into the winery, right? So it's only really when you're out in the field that you have the opportunity to, um, to manage, you know, weather events or, or anything else with regard to the vintage. So let's talk about that. Um, as we've mentioned, like Bordeaux and Uruguay, Long Island has a maritime climate, so there are clear issues and challenges which arise from that from that wet climate. So, what do you do in the vineyard to deal with those challenges? There, there are a lot of challenges, right? And they and they span everything from, you know, from pest and disease management on, um, you know, kind of traditional stuff like powdery downy mildew um, to insect controls and, and insect pests to just um, just weeds and kind of other plants, right? I mean, and this is, we, we don't have the natural control of, of a dry growing season in order to limit um, kind of growth under the canopy. So a lot of that has to be done manually, um, you know, because we do have that humid environment, you know, we do have to be quite aware of, of other kind of pest diseases such as powdery and downy mildew, um, you know, and, and you know, with that in particular, it's a lot of focus on canopy management. So both kind of how we how we lay out the canopy within the trellis system, um, you know, leaf pulling and leaf thinning, um, laying out clusters such that the clusters are kind of evenly spread out, not pressed up against each other, um, green thinning and, and green harvesting. Um, so really, it's just kind of a lot of manual handwork in the vineyard that that allows us to kind of manage around um, kind of the various challenges associated with um, with being in that more kind of humid maritime climate. And with canopy management, is this something you're doing all year round or are there specific periods in the year where you were managing the canopy? It, it's really fairly consistent through the growing season, right? So, you know, you know, you know, around bud break and stuff like that, there's maybe not so much, but basically beyond that, you know, there really is. I mean, so even at bud break, we're going through and maybe rubbing off or removing some buds that um, that are too close together to make sure that our that our can everything that we grow is uh, is a vertical shoot position, so it's all um, uh, cane pruned and then uh, and then VSP trained. So making sure that we have. Um, the right number of shoots per vine, that they're correctly spaced, um, removing suckers and kind of managing the undervine so that we don't have weeds growing up through uh, into the fruiting zone by the time we get towards later in, this, in the summer. Um, and then making sure that the canes are positioned within the trellis system uh, and then leaf pulling being kind of a kind of the first major exercise, which typically happens right around flowering. So that's kind of typically kind of in the ballpark of June 15th, maybe a little bit earlier or later, depending on the site. Um, and depending on the vintage, of course. Um, and then, you know, we'll typically go through after leaf pulling, which we do by hand, um, we'll typically leaf pull both sides. You know, we don't often have the type of um, extreme high temperatures, again, because of the maritime climate or extreme kind of, you know, solar irradiance that, that would result in a lot of sunburn that you might see on the West Coast. So we do pull leaves on both sides of uh, of the clusters to make sure that they're getting maximum sun exposure and then go through by hand and make sure that we both 
thin the clusters to kind of roughly two or three clusters per shoot, depending on the variety and, and what the program is for that for that block. Um, and then also make sure that the clusters are hanging freely and, and getting good, good adequate airflow. Um, so that's really kind of continuing on, you know, basically until we get the bird nets on. Um, we do have uh, migratory birds that that, that feed um, on grapes on the East Coast that we do net all of our vines. Uh, and that's usually happening just post foration. So typically kind of mid-August. So that's kind of the, the peak of the handwork is really going on, um, you know, from the beginning of June through kind of the middle to, to late August. So is netting common in New York and in Long Island for uh, most wineries? It is very common in Long Island. Most uh, most wineries do net. Uh, you know, the, the, the those small swallows and, and, and other birds will, will eat a lot of grapes really quickly. Um, it's always kind of amazing. And that must be quite labor intensive and expensive as well. Uh, it, it is, you know, it's, uh, you know, on, honestly, compared to, to a lot of the other handwork, um, that goes on in the vineyard, it's, it's not necessarily the most, um, expensive or labor intensive element. Um, though, you know, it's certainly, certainly a factor. Yeah. And I just remember when I visited New Zealand and talking to people who had worked in the vineyard, how much they hated it because uh, the nets were so heavy and the work had to be done as quickly as possible, even though it was a uh, very hard work and difficult to do that quickly. Yes. And then they have to come off right before harvest. So that, that's another time factor. You know, we're often around harvest um, trying to time around a weather event. You know, as, as I mentioned, we do get large um, precipitation events and it's Atlantic hurricane season in the fall when we're when we're approaching harvest. So, you know, we're often trying to um, hang the vines, hang the fruit right up into the last moment prior to some type of weather event that we're trying to avoid. Um, and then there can be a little bit of a rush to get the nets off, get the fruit clear, get the fruit picked and into the winery prior to uh, to the rain, typically. Yeah. So with hurricanes, um, obviously the wind is a good thing in terms of air circulation, but in general, hurricanes sound quite terrifying to me. So what are the effects of hurricanes on the vines? Yeah, not, not, knock on wood, we, 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 you know, while we've had hurricanes that have been breaking up, um, or even just this year, you know, we did have a, you know, a, I guess it was technically a category one, I believe, hurricane. Um, you know, it's, it's windy. We, I haven't experienced any damage in the last six or seven years from hurricane wind. I think what I worry about more is those really large rain events where you can get, you know, even if it's no longer kind of a, a named storm, but as they're breaking up, they can bring a lot of really uh, warm air and wet air into the area. And that's where you can get really significant rain events. Um, again, fortunately, because of the soils that we have in the vineyard, um, they are extremely well draining. You know, you never see standing water, you never see a puddle in the vineyard, right? Because they are these kind of deep, sandy, gravelly soils. Um, but still, that's always, that always creates a lot of anxiety, um, you know, when, when you see those large rain events. I think, you're, you know, the fear is always that, um, that you're going to have the vines taking up a lot of water, that you might get berries pulling away from the rachis or berries splitting. Um, and that can create a lot of disease risk and disease pressure in the vineyard. Um, so I worry a little bit more about the rain than the wind, um, though there are kind of, you know, horror stories of, of Gloria and some of the other uh, major hurricanes of the uh, 90s um, that, uh, that, you know, tipped rows over or created other significant issues, though we've been fortunate that we haven't experienced that yet. And those rain events you talk about, is there anything you can actually do? Uh, <laughs> um, I, I remember in one of, my, uh, one of my early vintages out on Long Island talking to uh, Roman Roth, who's the uh, winemaker for Wolfer Estate on the South Fork. Um, and I, I think I asked him a similar question in terms of like how he, uh, you know, what he does or how he thinks about some of these weather events and, and timing and impact. And he said, prayer, <laughs> prayer is his, uh, is his method. So, you know, I, 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 I think you have to recognize to a large extent that, um, 
you know, these things happen. We're in a wet climate, you know, we get rain through the growing season, we get significant rain events in the fall. Um, you know, the vines are pretty well accustomed to it and, and you know, year in and year out, you know, though there've been some vintages where, where rain has been really impactful in recent memory, 2018, for example, um, you know, but all in all, um, you know, it's an element of our climate that we have that wet weather and that, that humidity and we, we manage around it. And, you know, and to some extent the wines may reflect it, but I think that's an element of the climate. And when do you generally pick the grapes? So it depends on the variety. So, you know, I've made everything out on the East End from traditional method sparkling wines to um, to varietal Cabernet Sauvignon. So for those traditional method sparkling wines of Chardonnay, we're typically harvesting around Labor Day. So that might be, you know, September 5th, 6th, 7th. So kind of end of that first week of September. Um, for something like a barrel fermented Chardonnay, um, we maybe is picking that same, maybe picking that same Chardonnay as late as, you know, the first week of October. So quite a long harvest on the whites. Um, reds typically don't start for us until the middle or kind of the third week of October. So I think the earliest we've, earliest I've picked um, Cabernet Franc, I think is October 18th. Um, and then that can extend quite far on the reds. So for Cabernet Sauvignon and Petit Verdot, I believe the latest I've harvested those wines have been November 14th. Um, but I'm typically harvesting Cabernet Sauvignon in the first week of November. Um, so really a harvest that, that spans, depending on the style and the variety, from the first week of September all the way to the first or second week of November, depending on the vintage. And so that's quite a long growing season. And does that cause you quite a bit of stress when you've got these rain events, but the grapes are actually ripening quite late? Absolutely. I mean, you know, look, it, it, it is a very long growing season. And, and I think that's that, that's a or the key element of our of our region and kind of our terroir and how it's reflected is that we, you know, we do have this this characteristic climate of this very long maritime growing season, which is which is cool, but very long and very moderate. So very low diurnal variation, very slow ripening, um, long season, um, which I think is really important to to kind of the characteristic elements of our of our fruit, which is that we achieve a lot of that really kind of physiological maturity and ripeness of flavors in the fruit while having really kind of restrained um, structural characters to the wine, right? So restrained, ripe, integrated tannins, um, retained bright acidity, and, and more moderate kind of balanced alcohol level. So that's really a key characteristic. So so really important. I, I definitely wouldn't want to change that in any way, um, but it is, it, it is anxiety inducing, particularly for some of those later ripening varieties like Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, you know, and frankly, I think that's why, um, you know, it is a challenge to grow Cabernet Sauvignon and many, many wineries and winemakers don't, you know, or use it in blend and don't make varietal. Um, you know, when, when you start having fall weather events in September and into early October and you're getting more rain and wet weather, you know, you've got to be really meticulous with the farming of Cabernet Sauvignon, you know. For something like Chardonnay, you might be picking it next week. So if you get a little bit of botrytis here, ah, we'll sort it out or we can drop that cluster. It's not a big deal. Um, for Cabernet Sauvignon, if you're if you're having any issues in, in the vineyard in September, you're not going to make it till the second week of, of, of November. So, you know, you've got to be really careful with the farming um, and, and just make sure that, that it stays um, stays clean and, and hangs clearly and, and, you know, and gets that hang time because it's really critical for those late ripening varieties. So let's talk about the great varieties. You've already mentioned Cabernet Sauvignon. But I have with me uh, two of your wines, one from Cabernet Franc and another from Merlot. So two other great varieties associated with Bordeaux. Uh, first of all, let's talk about Cabernet Franc. So Cabernet Franc, you know, interestingly, you know, has been really a darling of Long Island and, and of New York in general. You see it upstate, you see it throughout the East Coast. Um, it is early, earlier ripening than Cabernet Sauvignon, um, which I think is why many winemakers have gravitated to it. Um, 
you know, and, and really it's been a little bit of a pivot. Um, you know, Merlot was one of kind of the founding and kind of foundational varieties for the East End of Long Island and for the North Fork in particular, you know, and perhaps overly so, perhaps overly, there was, uh, you know, overly focused on Merlot. Um, and as kind of consumers have shifted away over over kind of the, the decades since uh, from Merlot, uh, Cabernet Franc has really been a variety that people have gravita gravitated towards. And, and for me, the Cabernet Franc on the East End of Long Island is... Um, kind of somewhere between kind of what you would see out of Bordeaux and what you would see out of Loire. It's not not quite as kind of robust or kind of muscular as Cabernet Franc can be in, in Bordeaux, um, but not quite as kind of light or, or kind of cool climate or vegetal as you might see out of the Loire. So uh, for Cabernet Franc, for us, we do kind of really see that characteristic quality where we're achieving full physiological maturity of the fruit through our long ripening season. So kind of uh, not a lot of pyrazinic character typically in Cabernet Francs from the east end of Long Island. Um, a lot of kind of, you know, ripe red and dark fruits, so strawberry, cherry, raspberry, often kind of like a, a little bit of like a stemmy, spicy quality to the wine. So maybe a dried herb quality, but, but really not that kind of fresh bell pepper or jalapeno pepper that you might see in, in more pyrazinic you know, examples, but, but still kind of that light framing of Cabernet Franc. So, so really kind of that kind of decidedly medium bodied texture, kind of light, fine tannin, um, and really kind of perfumed kind of lifted aromatics uh, is pretty typical of Cabernet Franc from, from the East End of Long Island. And then depending on vintage, right, they can be a little fuller, a little kind of, um, you know, more of kind of a, a ripe macerated fruit quality, a little warmer alcohol levels, or a little more cooler, restrained, leaning more to that herbaceous character uh, with a little more kind of tart, bright acidity. It's interesting you described the Cabernet Franc as a cross between a Bordeaux and the Loire. Uh, this Cabernet Franc that I've just been trying of yours it does have that um, in-between feel. It's not as uh, pyrocene driven or as light bodied as a Cabernet Franc from uh, Loire Valley, but it's not as full or tannic as one might imagine from uh, Bordeaux. And it's certainly not as big and full bodied as tannic as Napa Valley. So it's very much its own thing. So would you say uh, this distinct nature of the Cabernet Franc that I've just tried is quite indicative of Long Island and also perhaps evidence that Cabernet Franc is a great variety which really represents the climate and soil types of uh, the Long Island growing conditions? You know, that's a good question, and I'm not entirely sure. You know, I love Cabernet Franc, and I think I love it in particular as a varietal wine, and I like the range with it, right? So so in that particular Cabernet Franc of mine that you just tried, um, that's predominantly whole cluster fermentation, so incorporating a lot of stems, treating it more in kind of that Burgundian winemaking style, open top fermentation, cooler, slower fermentation with indigenous yeast. Um, again, that, that stem inclusion, um, you know, aged in neutral neutral cooperage um you know you also see examples of cabernet franc from the east end that that go a different direction with it right fully distemmed maybe even riper in style a little more extraction uh, kind of more in that kind of bordeaux kind of kind of bearing um and i love that versatility of cabernet franc and i think that cabernet franc on its own um creates really complete wines because you have that kind of um, that kind of interest of an herbaceous character, kind of a non-fruit character in the wines, uh, I think they do lend themselves to kind of the, the type of minerality that we express in our climate as well, where they can have a kind of a salty, stony quality. Um, but they do show kind of a nice, pretty red fruit and, and rose, violet, like these types of aromatics as well. So 
I, I think it's really interesting. But but that being said, I also don't want to say that that Cabernet Franc is is the variety because you know I do believe that Merlot, um, in particular among the Bordeaux varieties, also really says something unique from our region and and, and has really a uh, an interesting and unique and, and high quality expression. Before we talk about Merlot, tell me about this Cabernet Franc in Dijine because I believe there's some experimentation behind it. There is. So- so, so that one is from one of one of our more kind of uh, experimental series. Is so every year we produce our our core flagship varietal wines, um, and then also do kind of a handful of different experimentations, and those evolve over time. Uh, you know, and we, we will often repeat them and make them for a handful of years, or integrate elements of them into those core wines. So they kind of um, kind of evolve and ebb and flow, and kind of integrate into our core programs. Um, so in that particular wine. Um, that's an indigenous fermentation that we conduct in the vineyard. So for that wine, uh, that fruit is never entering the winery and, and therefore is meant to kind of capture the microbiological environment of the vineyard without any of the kind of overwintered yeasts or house strains that may be kind of in equipment or even just kind of in the atmosphere in the walls of the winery or from other fermentations that are active by the time that wine is harvested. So we're picking that um, by hand in the vineyard. Those whole clusters are going into one and a half ton macro bins. Um, and then we're getting that fermentation going uh, on its own uh, with kind of hand and foot treading of the of the fruit in the vineyard um, with whatever ambient uh, and indigenous yeasts are, are present on the fruit and, and in the atmosphere of the vineyard at the time. And and again, it's, it's a quality of our very kind of moderate mild climate and low kind of diurnal variation that allows us to achieve that without climate control um because you know we do have that kind of very mild um fall so the temperatures are warm enough for, for fermentation to be quite secure but nevertheless you must have been quite nervous about um fermenting in the vineyard i mean i i was a little bit nervous about it but i think i think that's that's part of what's interesting is, is what it's going to express you know i i, I you know, stuck fermentations aren't something that, that we struggle with often, you know, not something that we see, you know, again, we do have this pretty, you know, moderate levels of, of potential alcohol. So we're not seeing this really difficult fermentation environments for, for yeast strains that we have to worry about. So, you know, honestly, I'm just trying to think back now, I think in the last, you know, six years, I, I don't think I've ever had a stuck fermentation. And I work with a number of indigenous fermentations. Um, so it's just, I think we do have pretty you know, in terms of, you know, nutrition for yeast in the fruit, our, our yeast assimilable nitrogen levels in the fruit at harvest are generally naturally quite healthy. Um, you know, again, potential alcohol is not so high. You know, the pH of the wines is in is in a place where it's low enough that I don't worry very much about spoilage bacteria, um, but but high enough that it, that I you know don't don't think that you're going to have any trouble going through malactic or anything naturally. Um, so you know, I think that the chemistry of the fruit is such that it kind of lends itself, um, at least to some extent, to to those kind of you know potentially more risky and kind of more indigenous types of fermentations. And is this wine a one-off or something you're doing every year? Uh, we did it again in 2018. Um, and then, you know, often what I'll do is I'll, I'll, you know, work with a certain technique for a year or two or three in a row. And then I'll take a step back from it and kind of wait and see how the wines evolve and emerge and then start maybe reintegrating that technique. So then beginning in 2020, we've been doing fermentations that way and integrating them into our into our core wines um in 2021 we will bottle um separately another one because we've uh now expanded that where it's actually quite a quite a significant portion of our total fermentation of cabernet franc 
Well, the wine's uh, clearly delicious, so your experimentation has worked. And as you've mentioned, um, it's not quite the Loire, got a bit more body and weight to it, but not too full or too rich. And there's a nice spiciness to it, kind of a jalapeno feel, and a nice good tannic structure to it, very well balanced. Yeah, I think that in that wine in particular, I think it's also a factor of, of the 100% stem inclusion. You know, I, um, again, so kind of my background in terms of working with other varieties such as Pinot Noir, I've always been a really big fan of stem inclusion, you know, in that I, I like the tannin that it brings to the wine. To me, um, kind of the tannin from the from the stems feels more similar on the palate to like the type of tannin that you would achieve, you know, with with use of oak um, than it does to kind of pure grapeskin tannin. And in our wines on the east end, we typically see lighter and lower levels of total overall tannin. So bringing a little more tannin into the wine via those stems, I think, is always really helpful structurally. I also like the way it impacts the fermentation dynamics, where it keeps things going slow as you're releasing sugar slowly throughout the ferment. I think that really helps kind of bring out a little more of the kind of delicate kind of aromatic character of Cabernet Franc. And then uh, and then also kind of, you know, that kind of manual manipulation, I think it helps kind of break up the fruit, but also kind of control the total level of extraction. Let's talk about Merlot. You've already mentioned that this grape variety is really expressive of Long Island and its climate and its soils and also the grape variety which is perhaps most associated with Long Island. So how does Merlot work in Long Island? You know, Merlot was absolutely the, the number one most planted grape variety on the East End, um, you know, beginning in the 1980s, um, and, and really was kind of foundational for the region. Um, I think the style of Merlot on the East End of Long Island um, really kind of strikes that kind of, you know, middle world type of balance, right? So where, you know, it has... Uh, a, a clear old world reference point, but then has certain new world characteristic as well, right? So while it's not going to be as kind of maybe inky or jammy or, or, or heavy as you might associate West Coast Merlot, or at least kind of the, the stereotype of West Coast Merlot, it, it definitely has kind of, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a kind of muscular kind of natural bearing, but, but also kind of a very upright acidity that keeps it balanced, relatively restrained alcohol uh, from the East End. Um, so definitely something that feels a little more kind of old world uh, in character, if I can use that, that phrase. So, you know, I think that's really kind of core to Long Island in general as a wine region, right? So you have this maritime climate where you're achieving this level of ripeness, this maturity of tannin, where you're able to extract without it being green or bitter. But because you have the structure associated with that cooler climate, that acidity, that restrained alcohol, um, you're able to create wines that both have extract and but then also have kind of this balanced structure in terms of kind of brightness and kind of freshness on the palate. So you've mentioned that the soils of the North Fork of Long Island have quite a gravelly content to them. And this is what we would associate with Cabernet Sauvignon in Bordeaux. But in contrast, it's Merlot that is excelling in this region. And in Bordeaux, Merlot is more associated with the clay limestone soils. So what is the relationship between Merlot and the soils in the North Fork of Long Island? Yeah, I, th I think it ties into climate, right? I mean, as you mentioned, the, those heavier soils are meant to retain that warmth, right? Which, which means that they're, you know, they're warmer overnight as they're emitting that warmth back and back towards the vine uh, and reducing kind of the, the diurnal variation within the microclimate of that vineyard. Um, I think what you see on Long Island, again, to that kind of mischaracterization of us as a very cold climate, is that actually from a, from a growing degree day perspective, we're not a cold climate. We, you know, we accumulate typically over 3000 degree days in a given vintage, you know, compared to something like, like again, Oregon and the Willamette Valley, where you're maybe at 2500. 
Um, so, you know, you are quite warm even relative to classic regions in the old world, but the way you're accumulating those degree days is via that very low diurnal uh, and given that long growing season. So you are kind of from the natural climate and that you're achieving um, because of the maritime surrounding and the, and the kind of the influence of the bodies of water, you're achieving maybe to some extent a similar type of kind of cadence and kind of, you know, day-night day, cycle in terms of the ripening character of the vine as you would in a region that kind of achieves that via some heavier soils that kind of retain and release heat throughout the evening. The specific Merlot we're tasting is the Estate Merlot from 2017. And on the back label, it says Davis Clone 6. Uh, tell me about that. Yes, so we do mention the clone on the label. Um, you know, I, I think in general, my uh, my philosophy with the, with the labeling of the wine is to just be as kind of transparent with everything as possible. You know, I, I'm not necessarily personally someone who believes a whole lot in in kind of clonal variation compared to kind of broader, you know, site-specific variation or, or how, how the wines are farmed or kind of what the broader climate impact is on the wine. Um, but we do list the clone. It is a Davis clone of Merlot. Um, but, it, you know, these wines are harvested, typically Merlot and Cabernet Franc are harvested around the same time for us. I, I've kind of gravitated recently towards picking Merlot a little bit later than Cabernet Franc, just because I like stylistically the Cabernet Franc to be a little a little brighter and the Merlot to be a little kind of kind of kind of more ripe. Um, so we're typically harvesting again in that third or fourth week of October. Um, for this wine, the fruit's 100% destemmed. Uh, again, the fermentation is uh, is in small, you know, one and a half ton macro bins. I like those kind of smaller fermentations. Uh, I feel like I'm able to, again, kind of extract both both more and more delicately by managing the cap by hand and kind of keeping that smaller um, kind of ferment and then also that lower thermal mass. I think helps keep the fermentation from getting too hot or, and kind of uh, helps helps the aromatics of the wine be a little more delicate in my experience typically doing a little bit of extended maceration post-fermentation. Uh, I like that to help kind of bring the tannin together in the wine. Um, after pressing, spending uh, only about, you know, only between nine and 12 months in barrel for me on the uh, on the estate red wines. I think what I've found over time is that, again, because the tannin is quite ripe and mature and, and not necessarily as hard as you might see in some other environments that maybe have kind of harsher conditions, either because of wind or altitude or, or solar radiance, um, you know, you're seeing the tannin be pretty resolved in barrel without a ton of oxygen exposure. So I'm finding that, that the wines really only need kind of between nine and 12 months, often depending on the style again and the vintage, um, but really only need between nine and 12 months of that kind of micro oxygenation in the barrel in order to round out the tannin. Uh, and then they're typically spending another year or two in bottle prior to release. And, and I find they come together nicely in that kind of anoxidative environment. I mean, I, I typically like to work with a little bit of a more reductive style in the red wines. I find that they give them a little more kind of sense of, of energy. They make them feel a little more upright. So so typically that shorter aging really just kind of, uh, you know, again, with each of these estate wines, because I do make an estate uh, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, each varietal meant to be 100% varietal and really an expression of, of the varietal on the site without a lot of kind of interference of winemaking. Um, my philosophy on the winemaking, particularly for those kind of core estate wines that, that we're growing, is, is that I want them to really be a reflection of, of the fruit that we're growing and, and less a reflection of the winemaking that we're doing. So I don't ever want a winemaking point to be the first thing that somebody thinks of when they're when they're taking a sip from the glass. I want them to be thinking of of the region and the characteristics of the region or the vintage. Absolutely, and in tasting these uh, two wines, winemaking was the last thing I was thinking about. Good. <laughs>
which is a good thing, I agree with you completely. And in tasting these two wines, for example, this Merlot with its refined tannic structure, thinking really about the fruit profile and the structure of the wine, rather than how this wine was made and what was done in the winery, and how it expresses where it comes from, rather than the winemaking techniques. What about the future? How do you see your winery and Long Island in general developing? For some reason, Albarino comes to mind. Why isn't there Albarino planted on Long Island? There is a little bit of Albarino being planted now. I, I think it's really interesting, right? I mean, you know, you mentioned Bordeaux and you mentioned Uruguay as, as points of reference, right? But but our climate is really an Atlantic climate, right? And Galicia, of course, comes, comes to mind immediately. Um, you know, there's a very small amount of it planted. Um, I, I don't personally grow it or work with it. So I, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens with it. I, I, I think it's going to be really interesting. I, I think there's a lot of room for experimentation with new varieties on the East End. And, and I think that, the, you know, again, as a, as a young and kind of up and coming wine region, right, there's a lot of room for that experimentation. And, um, you know, and I think we've seen some of that with Sauvignon Blanc as well, right, where, you know, you get a handful of winemakers who start working with it, and then people start to take notice and say, huh, okay, Sauvignon Blanc, that's pretty interesting here, actually. Um, maybe I'll plant Sauvignon Blanc, maybe I'll start working with Sauvignon Blanc, and then, and then it expands and it grows. Um, so I think Albarino has that potential as well. Um, I've planted a handful of other varieties, again, just kind of to see how they work in the climate. So in 2016, we planted um, a, a field blend of Marsan and Rousson. Uh, again, kind of taking into account um, what I view as some of the strengths of our region, which is that kind of that more kind of balanced moderate alcohol that we tend to see in our wines, um, that kind of bright tartaric driven acidity that we tend to see in our wines. And, and for me, Marsan and Rousson, you know, while really beautiful varieties, um, when grown in, in many new world climates, tend to lean towards flabbiness or, or kind of, you know, tend to lose that kind of sense of energy and purpose that they do have out of the old world. Um, so excited to work with that. Again, leaning into the fact that actually, you know, we do get a fair amount of degree day accumulation and, and for white wines, white, white varieties in particular, uh, we can get that hang time on them and, uh, and see if we develop, um, you know, some more of that ripeness and hopefully you know we've been picking those the last two years and we're picking it kind of around the same time as our red wines and the fruit's been coming in beautiful and clean and showing varietally in the cellar um yields are a little low so maybe maybe that'll be a barrier to uh to it really taking flight but um but always something fun to work with and then uh planted some nebbiolo as well which we've been working with again kind of uh you know thinking about the strengths of our region and how we tend to kind of through that very long and moderate growing season, develop tannins that, that are often very kind of soft and integrated and mature because we're developing a lot of that physiological maturity in the fruit um, without necessarily a lot of kind of overly bold or hard tannins or overly thick skins that you might see if you're getting kind of higher levels of sun exposure or wind or kind of other other factors that would impact the skins of the grapes. So. Um, so that's been fun too. That's been interesting. I think it's, right now it's been producing wines that are kind of light and aromatic and, and varietal. So that's uh, that's always what I look for when working with a new variety is that they, they have some sense of their kind of proper varietal character, but also structurally really often um, reflect the kind of unique climate and terroir of the East End. The advantage of a young region like um, Long Island is that you have the ability to experiment, you're not tied to tradition. But at the same time, there needs to be a focus to really establish yeah. and then maintain an identity, which in the new world is often generated by um, specific grape varieties which get associated with that region. That helps those regions grow, but they can get contained by having consumer perception strongly associated with just one grape variety. So it's a, it's a difficult balance, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And, you know, it reminds me, you know, I think about Long Island versus the Finger Lakes, right? With the Finger Lakes being so strongly associated with the very high quality Rieslings that they're making. So single variety that that's really started to achieve national and international traction. Um, you know, I look at the comparison between the wines of Oregon and the wines of Washington State, right? In, in Oregon, you see a focus on a single varietal like Pinot Noir. In Washington, there's so many wonderful varieties that are being grown. Now, maybe a coalescence around Syrah, but, um, you know, so many great things being done. You're almost kind of spoiled for choice. Um, I think that's what's hard about Long Island to some extent. There's a lot of different varieties being grown, a lot of different single varietal wines being made, um, you know, and therefore it can be a challenge to, uh, to kind of rally consumer expectations around a single one, a single variety or a single style. Because I think that's important as well. I mean, for consumers when, when they're trying something new or particularly from a new producer, you know, they want to at least have a sense of what they're going to get in that bottle and, and regional styles around an individual variety can be really helpful in setting that consumer expectation and, and allowing consumers to take a risk on a new producer because they feel like they understand what, um, you know, varietal X from region Y is. I think that's a really important point, actually, that associating a region with style rather than grape variety can still give consumers an, a really a strong identity to latch onto and understand the region. Yeah, I mean, that's that's always my thinking, you know, with regard to, you know, when people think about the wines of, of the East End of Long Island or of New York, you know, again, as you mentioned, I mean, the New York consumer is so, sorry, the, the New World consumer is so focused on varietal. Um, you know, but but any variety that we grow in the East End is going to be more similar to another variety grown in the East End than to that same variety grown grown on the West Coast. The climate's just so important, and the terroir is so important that you know, I think even of varieties like Sauvignon Blanc on, on the East End of Long Island, they tend to show very different in terms of their varietal character. Much more kind of restrained or subdued and textural, um, almost more like. East End Chardonnay than than certainly compared to to Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc or Sauvignon Blanc from a more well known region. So I, I do think that that association with with region is absolutely critical and, and really the most important factor. And I get that with these two wines. They're from two different grape varieties, Merlot and Cabernet Franc, and they taste like those grape varieties. But at the same time, they taste like they're from the same place. That there is a consistency of expression to these wines rather than being radically different. And, and those are wines that are made about as radically different as two wines that I make. So, you know, I, I think that that speaks to kind of the primacy of, of climate and terroir and, and site over, over essentially anything else. And one last question before we finished. A few weeks ago, I tasted another of your wines, a Chardonnay aged under floor, which I found uh, quite fascinating. Can you tell me a bit about that wine? Yeah, absolutely. So that, again, was one of one of our more experimental wines. And, you know, and again, with, the, with these wines that, that are a little more experimental or explorational, you know, they're really meant to to explore a different facet of our climate or our region or our terroir, uh, because I think that's that's the fun and that's the interest in being in a in a young and kind of frontier wine region is that there are these areas that are still kind of yet to be explored. Um, you know, I, I think that wine started, um, you know, by me reflecting on on obviously the the, the, the kind of the obvious reference point being uh, being you know Manzanilla or Fino Sherry, um, you know, in the maritime climate of, of Manzanilla in particular, and and the floor that that happens there and kind of and the role of those wines with local seafood, uh, you know, and, you know, and, and I was just really curious about it. And the other thing that that kind of spoke to me is, you know, pretty early on when I started making wine in the East End, one of the first things I did was went and started trying to taste with some other winemakers um, and particularly tasting some of the wines from their libraries and looking at some of the wines that were a little bit older. And when I was looking at 
some of the much older Chardonnays that, that people were generous enough to pour for me, what I was finding is they had this really kind of pronounced salinity and kind of this mineral quality to the wines that, you know, may, maybe is just an association, you know, uh, you know, minerality being being the, the buzzword that it is, um, but, but kind of speaks to the maritime climate itself, speaks to that saltiness. Um, and, and my thinking was that I really wanted to see if using something like Floor, whether you could strip away some of the fruit and some of that kind of overt, you know, glycerol or non-fermentable sugars, kind of some of the strip away some of the fat of, of a young Chardonnay and leave that kind of core of salinity that I was seeing after, you know, 10 plus years of age in the bottle. Um, so that was the thinking behind that wine. So it, it is unfortified. So not, um, you know, not, not a Manzanilla, but, uh, but we got it quite ripe. So it was in the kind of that ballpark, um, you know, of, of total alcohol where floor was able to form and we didn't have issues with, with volatility. Um, so yeah, that aged under floor for, um, I think it was 24 months in total um, and then bottled it. So a little bit more kind of fruit and freshness than, than if it had aged under floor longer. I kind of wish I had held some back and left it longer, but uh, I, I got overexcited and put it in the bottle and wanted to get it out there. Kind of a really fun wine. And, uh, you know, I think an example of kind of where a technique in the cellar is meant to, to highlight an element of terroir rather than, than obscure it. That is one wine where I would ask about the winemaking. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> and I thought it's extremely delicious. I have to confess, I was a little bit sceptical at first about a wine from Long Island, aged under floor, uh, from Chardonnay. But having tasted it, I thought it was just really fresh and it just retained its elegance with that floor character. And because it's not fortified, it didn't have that... It didn't have that overt heaviness to it, and as I said, retained that freshness. Not sure how commercially viable this style of wine would be, but I'd recommend doing it again. It was a very small lot, but uh, yeah, no, you know, a little bit of skepticism is never such a bad thing. You know, like I, I, I always think, um, you know, one of you know, uh, Abe, Abe Schoner from Scullion Project has been been a great friend and mentor, and I think one of the things that he said that stuck with me the most is never be afraid to let the wines fail. Right. So, you know, you take a chance with the technique or style, you try and push a little bit. You know, if, if you're not in love with it immediately, give it more time. It might resolve. It might be beautiful. And if it doesn't, what have you lost? You know, a barrel or two. You know, it's it's not um, it's not the end of the world, um, you know, versus when it really succeeds, you can achieve something that's really interesting and really kind of, you know, informative and, and educational. Right. I mean, there's no no textbook you can read about making wine on the east end of Long Island. You've got to kind of write it yourself and figure it out and, and, and explore what works and why and what doesn't and why. <laughs> yeah. Always learning. And I think that's true of regions like Burgundy, who have been making wine for 1500 years of more, always um, learning something new and advancing. And that's true of a young region like Long Island, too. Uh, so thank you for joining us, Alex. This has been a really educational experience about Long Island, learning about the climates, the great varieties, the soil types and the styles of wines being made there. I would definitely recommend, if you can, checking out wines from Long Island. They're completely different from the wines of Finger Lakes, even though it's the same state as we've discussed, just a warmer climate, and so therefore different styles of wine. And this is a region which I think is clearly going to um, advance in very positive ways. Great. Yeah, me too. I think, I think that's a great characterization. And thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. So thank you for listening. This is Matthew, and this has been Matthew's World of Wine and Drink.